Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's uh, again turn back to Proverbs chapter 29. And it's been two weeks since we we have been in the Bible together, and I appreciate uh, what the guys did last week, and it was a great time and some great preaching and some great messages. But you remember the last time we were together, we we looked at, uh, I think, one of the uh, best sets of verses to really explain uh, why we are as a nation, uh, the state that we're in. Many times we like to blame our problems uh, on, uh, on the liberals, uh, you know, the politicians, uh, the government, you know, uh, and that's just, simply, um, that's just simply not true. You know, I realize that our country, and you probably know and understand this, that our, our country is in a very sad state of affairs. Uh, you know, I know across the I know across this country, um, pastors are getting in the pulpit and, and telling their people to, to pray for our country. And I'm certainly not, not opposed to that, not against that. But I, I may also tell you that as long as a country takes a stand against the Word of God, you can pray all you want. It ain't going to change a thing. What this country doesn't need is prayer. It needs, it needs to get back to God the way it once was. You know, our present president, you know, two times a year, every president does it. A couple of times a year, he'll have what they call the State of the Union Address, where he'll go on all the public, you know, broadcasting things and give an account of where the nation is and, and what state it's in. And I can tell you that it wouldn't have to be a very long meeting for, for me. It's in a state of anarchy, total collapse. I've never, ever seen this country uh, divided like it is right now. Nothing is getting done. And it's not a question of bad and good. It's a question of bad and worse. I mean, uh, there is nothing that's going to get accomplished. And like we saw last time, it, it's been destroyed by wicked, scornful men. We went into great detail about how that, you know, um, in, in particular, preachers, and I told you how that a country can be brought back to God, as many countries have been through history. Uh, but when men who stand in that pulpit uh, reject uh, the Word of God, and, and it puts us in the mess that we are in today. And it's not the country that has apostatized, though that it has. It's pastors and churches and Christians that have apostatized. Wherever the church goes is where the, where the country goes. One of the great lessons of history, and there's many lessons of history, but one of the great lessons that people fail to see is actually when you go back in European history and you take it back um, from 500 to the Dark Ages on, you can actually see the impact of the Word of God in everything in Europe. I mean from the language, from the music, from the architecture. And the Word of God impacts everything. And you're going to find that if you study history in that light, you're going to see that it's an incredible thing. And when those countries, when Europe rejected the Word of God, I mean, Czechoslovakia at one time, the whole nation was filled with born-again people from John Huss. Czechoslovakia doesn't even exist anymore today. And you find time and time again how these great truths and proverbs are impacting us today. And how, you know, when they took the Word of God out of our cities, and that was what we talked about last week, that void was filled with murder, drugs, crime, and violence. And it's unprecedented. 
And uh, I, I want you to know, and I'm not, a, I'm, not a, I'm not a doomsday preacher. I'm just a preacher of truth. Doomsday is an inevitable thing. I mean, the Lord is coming back, and if you're on an inside, you're in trouble. <laughs> it's just that simple. But I want to tell you that there's absolutely no remedy in sight because men are not going to reject uh, the Word of God. A, a good example of that is show you how it works. Last week sometime you had that shooting in the church in Texas. And a uh, guy came in and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, pulled out a shotgun and killed two people. But they called it the, the, the sixth second. Uh, and the guy in the security team shot him, killed him dead. And, you know, uh, the liberals in this country uh, have been talking about taking all the guns away forever and ever and ever and try to keep guns out of everything. But, the, you know, the, the, the bad guys are always going to have their guns. And here's a perfect example case where a guy did what he needed to do in a church that did what they needed to do. And if they wouldn't have done that, there'd have been a lot more people killed than two. But you notice how the news media talked about it just a little bit that day and then it was buried and you never heard about it again. You know why? Because it was a good guy with a gun. And in the world today, in the media today, there are no good guys with guns. They don't want them. And that's, the, that's what we're up against today. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where... Um, one of the, another great lesson from history, and there are so many of them. No nation ever survived apostasy and God's judgment that rejected and, and scorned the Word of God. None of them ever went past 200, maybe 250 years, and Europe is a great example of that. Uh, Germany one time followed Martin Luther, not today. England one time followed the great preachers, not today. Their Europe is an amoral, total apostasy. Why? Because of the fact that they rejected God's truth. And that's the way America is going. It's, I'm sorry. It's just the way that it is. And if you know anything about your Bible, you know it has to go that way because of where we're at and the times that we're in. But then we all saw how, saw how that the righteous can turn away wrath, stay the hand of God. And I showed you uh, by the preaching of the Word of God. I showed you uh, just a few of the men that God used down through our history of our nation to keep our heads above water and to keep bringing us back to God. And as long as those men were doing what they did, and this nation took a stand on the Word of God as God's Word and loving God and giving God the preeminence, we had a chance. But now today, you know, uh, just like in 606 B.C. And for the southern tribes and 721 for the northern tribes, we have went into captivity. Christianity is captive of the world today. The world is a captivity of anarchy today. I mean, the Christian world uh, is so worldly with its music and its preaching and its lifestyles. We have, just like the nation of Israel, went into our own captivity. And you know, during that time in the captivity, God sent them the prophets. And the prophets were men that God sent to an apostate nation to try to bring them back to God. You got the major prophets and the minor prophets. And they all started whatever they said by saying, Thus saith the Lord. And every one of them, every one of them, went after the real sin problem that was Israel's, their rejection of God and His Word. And don't ever forget, God judges nations just as He judges individuals. Psalm chapter 9 says that the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. I gave you two great verses on dealing with a fool. And I showed you that there's two kinds of fool. We talked about this, not this Thursday night, but last Thursday night. Somebody asked a question and we kind of developed a little bit. 
shows you how that there's two kinds of fools. One fool, the Bible says, answer not a fool according to his folly. The other one that says, you answer him. And I went through and I explained how that works. And I showed you how that in spite of a, a bona fide fool who hates truth, who hates the word of God, who hates you for preaching it, you and I are to go after their soul. So we don't take those things personal. You're supposed to realize the situation you're in, why people are the way they are. And I ended that sermon with 2 Kings chapter 4. And I showed you a great story in the Old Testament of giving life to dead people and showing you how that you reach the world by understanding where they're coming from. Now today, we're going to move on in three more verses, Proverbs chapter 11, 12, and 13. Now, now let me just say this here for a moment. I, when it comes to the Bible and it comes to the ministry, um, I, I'm old school. Uh, I feel like time sometimes the Woody Hayes in a, in a you know a, a, in in the world that we live in today. It's a thing where uh, I was taught by the last of the Philadelphian preachers, the last ones who were the last of the last of the last of the remnant of the great men that trained them and taught them. When I was trained in the ministry, it's totally different. And I mean, I use a lot of the things for you, but I understand that there's no way that I could do today what I did back then. I I do. A lot of it, but I realize that it's a different world that we live in. Uh, Christianity has completely reversed itself. I thank God every day of my life for allowing me to live from the 1950s up to where I'm at today. Uh, and I actually got to watch it transition from one to another. I, and by watching it and seeing it, I had the men in my life who were pointing it out to me. And, and at the same time, as Paul said, what I call the Timothy principle... They were committing to me what faithful men are supposed to, that unbroken line chain of Bible doctrine as it comes down through. And I, I'll never be able to thank God enough for allowing me to do that and see that and experience that. I think that one aspect has helped me more put everything in perspective today because, you know, I feel sorry for young preachers today. I really do. I still feel sorry for young Christians the book of Hosea tells us that one of the problems that Israel had, that they had no comparison of what God really did back in the day with where they were at now. So they thought that what they were doing was the best that they were supposed to do. And that's where we're at today. You young guys have no clue what a real revival is. You guys have no clue what a real Bible ministry is. You're caught up in a Christian world that is so tainted, that is so far removed from everything that God intended it to be. Most of the teachings that is taught today are non-biblical teachings. They're Christian and they're spiritual, but they have nothing to do with the Bible. And it's a tragedy today because I see young men who, who, you know, who I think personally have, have so much to offer if they would just get the truth the way the truth is really is. But I want to tell you, and I, you know, I preach on the neo-evangelicals and the neo-orthodox and the charismatic. I pick on them all, but I I'm especially pick on Baptists because Baptists should know better, but they don't. They have went into apostasy and they have developed a whole system, a whole system of, of, of teaching that is so adverse to anything that's truth in the Bible that we have lost that. 
And, you know, and in these three verses that we're going to talk about today are incredible verses. I, I think they're incredible verses because they really open up and help us understand how we are to approach these things. You know, I've been in the ministry almost 50 years. You can go back and find my tapes from 1988, 1975, 1976, or wherever. And if you listen to enough of them, and some of you have those, the problem is you can't find a cassette player anymore, and 8-tracks are really out. But you would, you would hear that I have not changed one thing in what I preached 45 years ago. It's the same. Because I have a book that doesn't change. And I have, I have a ministry that doesn't change. Because I've been taught by men who understood the, the, how important the unchanging truth of the Bible was. When I graduated from our institute back there, if that's what you want to call it, before any men went into the ministry, there were ten questions we had to add, answer before four or five of the older guys. And those 10 questions, when they got, and you couldn't use your Bible, you had to give them off the top of your head, and you had to spend at least 20 minutes, 30 minutes on each one of them. It took you a couple of days to go through it. But if you couldn't answer that to their satisfaction, they didn't send you out. And if I would give those same 10 questions to young preachers today, they'd die of a heart attack. No, 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 no. They think it was heresy. That's how far we've come from the real truth of the Bible. There's two things that you always want to have in your life that if you don't have them, you're playing with the Bible. One of them is established truth, and the other one is established history. Those two have to mesh together. You have to have established truth built on established history, or you don't go anywhere. So today, you know, this message to me is, is kind of a personal thing. So it's a thing where, you know, it, it brought back my memories of way back in the day when, you know, I was just like a, like a lot of you. I, I had a desire to know the Bible. <clears throat> I had a desire to do what God wanted me to do. Little did I know that it wasn't about just going to an institute or going to a Bible college or doing this. Little did I know that learning and grasping and understanding of the Bible was going to take me the rest of my life. And that's what it's going to take for you. But today, we want everything quickly. We want everything fast. This mindset of this easy Christianity, this surface of the Bible that pastors have today, it's just unbelievable. Uh, it's no wonder that Christianity in this country is in the state that it is in. Well, let me read these verses today. And it says, first of all, verse 11, 29, "...a fool uttereth all his mind." But a wise man keepeth it till afterward. If a ruler hearken to lies, all his servants are wicked. The poor and the deceitful man meet together. The Lord lighteth both their eyes. Terry Joe, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on my preaching today, buddy? Thank you, buddy. If anybody understands what I'm saying, today, Terry understands that he's been through it too. Now, verse 11 says, A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it till afterwards. Now, 
I, I always like to give you the context <clears throat> as we stay with things because I want you to get the full bore of everything we've got here. The context of this here in chapter 29, the fool uh, who utters all his mind will be the man that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, the scornful man, verses 9 and 10. We've talked about him. The scornful man who thinks that he has all the answers to everything and hates uh, the truth uh, of the Word of God and is totally unteachable. He lives his life scorning everything that has to do with God, yet he wants to pretend and project the fact that he or she has all the knowledge of life. We see it in the unsaved world. You know, uh, he, a guy, a person will go on forever and they'll speak, you know, 10,000 words and they'll write endless volumes of what they think is truth. And of course, you know, in Washington, D.C., they have what we call the Library of Congress. And the Library of Congress is, is, a, is an incredible library. It has been said that there are 838 miles of bookshelves if you would take the bookshelves and lay them end to end, there would be 838 miles, over 39 million books in that library. And there's books on science. There's books on evolution. There's books on philosophy. There's books on religion. There's books on history. There's books on outer space, cosmology. There's books on anthropology, nations and governments. Every subject that you could ever imagine. And what I want to tell you today is, according to Job chapter 38, verse 2, he says there, who is this that darkeneth counsel with words without knowledge? And that's where 90% of it lasts, or is. It, it, it's all worthless. In our public schools, you went to school, I went to school, the textbooks that I used were not the textbook that you used. And the textbook that you kids used will not be the textbook your kids use because they will tell us that Textbooks have to be completely changed every 10 or 12 years because everything changes. Everything keeps changing. We live in a world that in our minds or their minds is evolving up so everything needs to keep changing. My saying is that in the world there is no absolute truth. In the world there's nothing that is fixed. In the world, it keeps regenerating itself with new knowledge and new facts and discarding the old facts and the things that you learned in school 30 years ago are no longer relevant. And that's the world system. And that's why they hate the Bible. Yet every book in that library, every book that, every book that is in there, all 39 million of them could be judged in the light of one book, God's Word. Now, that's why men hate the Word of God. It's absolute. It's fixed. It, it needs, never needs to be updated. It never needs to be revised. It never needs to be changed. It, it's, it's, it's absolutely the most perfect thing that ever graced this planet. It, it doesn't have to be made easy to read. It doesn't keep up and evolve with changing societies. It's fixed truth by an absolute God given to man who in his general makeup wants to change and get around everything all the time. You know, it was around 1859 that Darwin came up with his pipe dream of evolution. He had written a book or a, piece of, a thesis or a paper on the origin of the species. And men wanted to get around the Bible so desperately 
Men wanted to reject the truth of the Word of God because you've got to remember that this is right in America. This is right in the heyday of, of, of good Bible preaching. And men wanted to get around the Word of God so badly that they immediately grabbed hold of, of his teaching, as ridiculously stupid as it really was or is. I mean, no sane man could ever account or accept that unless he had a real attitude toward the Word of God and hated God's Word and needed desperately something to hang on to to convince himself and others that the Bible wasn't true. And, you know, it's a thing where, but in time, we have saw Christianity who lost the absolute truth of God move into the same mindset. And now where the world is evolving in their mindset of evolution, theistic evolution has moved in now. And, uh, you know, and now where the world says that we're evolving, Christianity takes the position that your Bible's evolving. So every two or three years, they evolve it up a level to give you another translation. It's the same thing that the world has. And the problem in the world is they have no fixed truth. And the problem today in Christianity is we have no fixed truth. That's why we have the Methodists over there in Kansas going to split over same-sex marriages. Now, I'm not going to preach on same-sex marriages today. It's always been a very queer subject to me, so I just kind of stay away from it. But I want to tell you something. We look at that, and most of us here, hopefully all of us, we look at that with disdain. We think that how in the world, how in the world could a denomination that gave birth to Sam Jones, Bob Jones Sr., Mordecai Ham, the great preachers that preached it, how could a denomination take that stand today that they're actually going to split over the fact that there are pastors in this city and churches and Christians that believe that it's okay for two men to get married and two women to get married and think that that's okay. You know why? Do you know how you get to that point? You lose your fixed truth. And we look at that and we think that's terrible, but you know what? What is the difference between that than Baptist churches getting in the pulpit and telling you it's okay to drink or telling you it's okay to do this or do that or gamble or do this or do that. And just wait till legalizing marijuana gets taken care of. Steve was telling me about a church that comes into his gun shop. I'm glad that they come in before they finish. Their, their, their ministry is beer in a Bible in a church. They all go get drunk and then they go study the Bible. Maybe they study the Bible first and get drunk. I don't know. They probably get more out of it if they get drunk first. But anyway... That's where we're at today. Who would have thought of that? The problem in this country is us, Christians. It's churches. It's pastors. The country never had fixed truth. It's the churches and the Christians that had fixed truth, and that fixed truth fixed this country. But we've lost all that. And now we, we have an evolution of our Bible. 
Every translation gets better, closer to the originals, and it's an evolving process. And the same system of the world has the same system that has corrupted the church. And in both cases today, they have no absolute. You know, if you ever wondered, did God, does God have a sense of humor? Of course he does. Bible says that he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. In fact, in the Bible, there's four laughters. You know, you ought to study them sometime. And the last one is the laughter of God. We say, you know, he that laughs, laughs, laughs best. That's a true statement, oh, we think. But the truth of the matter is, God's going to have the last laugh at the great white throne judgment. And truly, he that laughs, laughs is going to laugh best. But, you know, the great joke of God is man comes up with the evolution process and Darwin sits down there in his little peanut brain and, uh, you know, when man with his PhDs and all of his stuff, he comes up with this subspecies thing where, you know, that man was a, uh, a worm back here and then he developed up, you know, uh, you know, and now here he is, modern man, and he's evolved to that point. And, and everybody just goes crazy over that. And yet... A Bible believer understands the great mind of God and the great joke of God played on man is, is the devil will always take some truth and reverse it. It isn't the fact that man started out as a worm and wound up being who he is today. The real thing is that God started man out perfect and he degenerated. And Isaiah chapter 66 says, where the worm dieth not, he evolved downward, not upward. He says in Isaiah 66, 24, I saw the carcass of the men that are transgressed against God, for their worm shall not die. Now, look at the last part of verse 24. But a wise man keepeth it till afterwards. Okay, keepeth what? What he knows, his mind. Now, in a practical way, we can all relate to this. We have all had been in the company of people who just can't shut up. I mean, they are the minister of information. I mean, men and women who have to dominate every conversation. And they're experts on everything. Whatever you say that you've done, they're going to one-up you. They did it better, cleaner, or bigger, or whatever the case may be. And, you know, it's, it's, just, that, it's just that way it works. And once they get going, it's, it's nonstop. I mean, it's like one of those CD players that you can put 15 CDs in and it just keeps going forever. But the Bible says the wise man keepeth it till afterward. Now, the wise man is one who will say, first of all, he'll say very little. Second of all, he'll listen and take in all that's being said because in his wisdom, he's learned to be a processor. In his wisdom, he's learned that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to find out where somebody's at, just listen to what they talk about. You know, he knows he can learn more uh, from what others say and doesn't need to take center stage in a conversation, you know, unless he's directly teaching something or laying something out or somebody asks him a direct question. You see, the key to a wise man is not what he says, it's not even what he knows. But it has to do with the depth of his understanding and his ability to use that depth in the right manner. A real Bible student will learn very quickly, you never teach all the Bible that you know. 
And, you know, there's two reasons for that. Because one of the reasons is that there's some things that God will give you that he gives you. Now, there have been times, boy, when I've been coming through something over the years and back in the Old Testament or someplace, you know, and working on a problem or seeing that thing, and boy, it was just like God turned the light on and bang, there it was. And to me, that was always a, an incredible moment in my life. And I never just got on the phone and called everybody up and said, hey, look what God just gave me. It was for me. And if I had done that, most of them would have just scratched their head and said, well, I guess you had to be there. You know, the great things that God gives you the moment he gives them to you aren't necessarily great things to somebody else. You know why? Because he gave them to you. You got to learn to keep your mouth shut, put it in your heart and hold on to it. And down the line, if God opens up the door for you to share it with somebody, hey, you're good. The second thing is that some of the things that, uh, uh, that you know about the Bible, they scare the fire out of most people. And a lot of young preachers, you know, they, they don't understand that. So they'll get up and they want to impress people. You know, they want people to see how much they know about the Bible. And they could teach all they know about the Bible in 60 seconds or less. But they'll do enough damage because they'll hear some truth someplace that is way beyond the scope of the person that they're preaching to. But because they want to dump it on them, they want to impress them, it just doesn't work that way. You always teach the Bible on a, on, a, on a parallel level to where the people are at that you're, you're teaching to it. But at the same time, you always want to give them enough to, to bring them along. That's what you do. And that takes some understanding and some wisdom of, of how to handle the truth that God gives you. You know, you always want to challenge them to rise to the next level of understanding. And a pastor who understands, or anybody who understands how to do that, will have a definite process by which that they try to accomplish that. They're not going to dump everything on somebody at one time. They're going to take you where you're at, listen to where you're at, and then build into you on a protracted scale to get you to a place of understanding. And you know what? It's not just enough to have the right Bible today. I wish it was that easy. We have lots of pastors. I know lots of pastors that have the right Bible. And they're teaching some of the greatest heresies that the Baptist church ever came out with. Totally outside the Word of God. So just because you have it doesn't mean that you understand what you have. And we're faced today with much like the nation of Israel. I, I think of Hosea eight twelve, 12 uh, many, many times when I talk to people or hear somebody try to teach the Bible. And he, Hosea eight twelve he talks about the fact that the great things of God have now become strange things to God's people. Boy, that is so true today. Most pastors know the terminology they've been taught. Most Christians do too, and there's a reason for that, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But Christianity has lost its, its foundational truth. I mean, it, it has. I mean, in a Job chapter 38, verse 6, and we talked about Job the other night in Bible study, and I told you how that Job was the probably one of the deepest books in the Bible, certainly the most scientific book in the Bible, but you can't separate science and everything from the Word of God, and within that is a lot of things that go on in the Bible. And he says in Job chapter 38, verse 6, he talks about the foundations. Where were you when God laid the foundations? Now, you know, foundation of what? Then he talks about God laying the cornerstone. 
and it begins to make shape when you understand what the cornerstone or who the cornerstone is, then you know, understand what the foundation was. The foundation was the Word of God. Because the Bible says, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all of the host of them by the breath of his mouth. You know, in Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about the four aspects of our knowledge about God. It talks about the breath. It talks about the length, and it talks about the height. And, you know, we can talk about, in a spiritual application, they, they all mean something. When it talks about the breath of God, that would be God's mercy. When it talks about the length of God, that would be established history of, of God and what He's doing. The height of God would be our trust, that He's able to be so high He can see over the problems that we have. And those are three physical dimensions. Every physicist understands those three dimensions. Those three dimensions are what life on planet Earth revolve around. But if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, there's a fourth dimension. And most pastors, most Christians, they have those three dimensions. But then he says, the depth of God. The depth of God is much different than the other three. The other three are the physical things that you understand just coming through your Bible. But you get into the depth of God, now you're, you're someplace where most Christians, most preachers never get to go. They never get there. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewned out her seven pillars. The Bible is built on seven pillars. God hewned them out of a rock. That would be himself. Those seven pillars make the foundation and the cornerstone of everything that God did. And I'm telling you right now, those things are lost today. You won't find them in the little sermonettes of the breath and the mercy and the love of God. No, no, no. Those things are found in the depth of God. But I want to tell you right now, any pastor, any Christian, any Sunday school teacher who takes his job seriously, who stands in a pulpit, and I want to tell you, the pulpit bears a tremendous responsibility. It's like being in the Navy and you're on a ship. You know the life, your life is in the hands of the captain of that ship? Whatever he decides to do doesn't just affect him, it affects everybody on board. And the man who stands in the pulpit, who has been not diligent with the Word of God, who has not hewned out of those seven pillars the truth that God has and has established. He stands in that pulpit every day or every Sunday and every time he does. And I'm telling you right now, if he doesn't understand the depth, he's playing with the Bible. Because just like the captain of a ship has your, your life in his hands, the pastor of any church has your destiny as far as the judgment seat of Christ is concerned. I'm going to show you that in a moment. I heard one of these guys one time, I was going through that, and the, the seven pillars. And he says, yes, the seven pillars are for the Christian life, and it's, it's such a good thing. Uh, the first pillar is to, to, be, to be pure. The second one is to be peaceable. Uh, the third pillar is to be, uh, is to be, uh, uh, be uh, it wasn't any good, but I can't remember what it was. The fourth one was to be willing to yield. 
the, the next one was to be full of mercy. Uh, the next one was to be without partiality. And the last one was to be without hypocrisy. Oh, isn't that wonderful? You have no clue. The seven pillars go much deeper than that. The seven pillars that are the foundation of the very Bible you're holding in your hand. Imagine pastors getting into the pulpit, talking about something, but if you threw them a Bible, they couldn't trace it back through the Word of God if their life depended on it. You know why? Because they just bought into what somebody told them. They never investigated it for themselves. It sounded good. It was handed down through Baptist tradition, and so that's what became the standard teaching. And I'm telling you, oh, be generous. That's what it was. Let me ask you a question. What really happened between Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 1, 2? I, I mean, I don't care what you believe. Could you go into the Bible and lay out the chain of evidence of what you believe? Let me ask you this. What's the definitive passage on it in the Bible? Certainly you would have a, I mean, you would have a definitive passage on what you want to believe. It says, in the beginning, God. What's the beginning? Is that the beginning of time? Is that the beginning of God? How does, I've had guys ask me, how does God, how can it be the beginning of God when God has no beginning? That is an excellent question because it isn't the beginning of God. But do you know where the definitive verse is in the Bible that tells you what that beginning is? Because that's the key that all the rest of the Bible falls on. That's what I'm talking about. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, what do you believe? Well, I believe, okay, show me in the Bible. Let's run that through. Show me the definitive verses on that. I, guys are so, they're so quick to reject truth, but they couldn't defend their truth if their life depended on it. That's where we're at today. Let me ask you a question. What really took place in Genesis chapter 3 between uh, Adam and Eve uh, and, and the devil? Was he that big snake up there in the tree? Was it an apple? My old grandmother used to say it was not the apple that got out. It was Adam and Eve's problem. It was the pear on the ground. Them, Adam and Eve. Pear, two. It's okay, it's okay. My grandmother was much deeper than most of us. Anyhow, but it's a thing where, come on. I mean, what really took place there? What really happened? People can talk about the, but when it comes down to the depth of those stories, what really transpired in that garden? Oh, I love this one. Heaven and a harp. When we die, we go to heaven, get issued a harp, and we pluck our way through eternity. Well, let me ask you a question. What are you going to do when you get to heaven? I don't mean this disrespectful. I really don't. But if that was all God's plan was, that he's going to get a harp and we just stop there and strum the camel train or something like that, no, I could get along with that. As long as you're going boom, 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 I could do it. Is that all there is to it? What is God's plan? Is that, did God not, is, is, when we get up there and the rapture takes place and we're saying, wow, this is great, God, we're really here. God's over here saying, okay, what are we going to do next, guys? I didn't think this through here. Where are we going? Really? 
What is his plan? When Isaiah, when Isaiah 9, 6 says of the increase of his government peace, there shall be no end, what is he talking about? What government is that? Why do you got out there in outer space? They just found, like they keep adding to it. I get lists all the time. I think they're up to 1,500 planets out there that are, that, are, that are like earth, that they keep finding them. What is this whole universe about? Did God just make that because he wanted to make a pretty picture at night? Where do we fit into that? Where does that? Somebody says, well, we're going to go to heaven and spend an eternity with the Lord. What does that mean? That is so lame. And it's not even true. The Bible says New Jerusalem comes out of heaven, Revelation chapter 21, and that's the abode of the church. But what do we do there? I got a mansion just over the hillside. A mansion? Really? And what are you going to do in that mansion? Think you got cable? <laughs> really? I, I, I just, you know, it's crazy. Uh, people just, and then somebody says, well, I don't, I just, I heard a song, I don't want the mansion, I'd just be happy with a little cabin in the sky. Really? Log cabin? We don't have a clue of what God's plan is. We pretend we do. We act like we do. We get up in the pulpit and we say these things and the people that we're preaching to are stupider than we are because they believe it. I'm going to get to that in a moment, maybe. But it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, uh, I mean, the great white throne judgment. Are you kidding me? Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, I saw a great white throne, him and sat upon whose face heaven and earth fled away. Are you kidding me? And I saw the dead small and great stand before him. Do you have any understanding what that day is going to be? I know we don't because if we did, We'd be telling everybody out there about the Lord Jesus Christ to try to get their soul saved before that day comes. We ain't no different than the Jehovah Witnesses. They don't believe there's a hell either. We say we do. When's the last time you heard a preacher preach a good hell, fire, damnation, take a paint off the wall message on hell? It's not popular. Upsets people. Might give you indigestion during your lunch. Well, whatever the great white throne judgment is to an unsaved man, I'm going to tell you something. The judgment seat of Christ is ten times worse for the child of God. Second Corinthians chapter 5 calls it the terror of the Lord, and we don't even understand what that means. We live our lives like either is no judgment seat of Christ or we're just going to take our chances because it's no big deal. I got news for you, friend. It is a big deal. I mean, I don't care what a person believes. I really don't. But don't stand there and reject truth when you got some goofy idea that you got someplace and you couldn't run it through the Bible if your life depended on it. What kind of body are you going to get in heaven? Oh, that's a good one. I hear all the time, am I still going to be married to my wife when we're up in heaven? Well, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? <laughs> I had a guy one time, I take prayer requests. He come up and see, he says, I want you to have a prayer request. And I said, okay. And he says, my wife is lying at death's door. 
And I said, well, I'm sorry for that, that, but he says, yeah, would you pray God pull her through? Okay. I like tombstones. I love reading tombstones. I love when they have a little picture of the person on there. Makes it more personal. When I have down, I used to work down Osawatomie and some of those places. There's the oldest graveyard in Osawatomie. It's got people buried back there from 1700s. It's great. And I, and I, would, I just like, I have to read them. Some of them are just really, one of them said, here lies my beloved husband. To follow, this is true. To follow you, I'm not content, for I'm not sure which way you went. I like that. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Bible says we get a glorified body. Really? What is that? Is your 90-year-old grandmother that died when she was 90, is she going to be 90 for eternity? That'd be a blast, wouldn't it? <laughs> and I don't care what you believe. I don't. But brother, you better be able to go through that book and document it. There better be a chain of biblical evidence that supports it historically and biblically as you walk that thing through with established truth. Are you kidding me? I mean, come on. Salvation in the Old Testament. Was this the same as salvation in the New Testament? I get that all the time. And I, I, you know, and then somebody says, well, you know, you got to, what do you do with Revelation 22, 14? Salvation's all done. Christ came and died on the cross. We're moving into eternity. In Revelation 20, 14, you got a tree of life again. And, and when you don't know how to handle that because there's no depth to you in the Bible and you don't know how to deal with things like that, which is, when I grew up, basic 101. You know what you do with it? You do what they all do with it. They say, well, that, that, that's not in the most accurate, trend, uh, accurate manuscripts. That was added by Erasmus. And uh, so that really should not be in your Bible. That's how you deal with it. And they'll tell you, well, you know that the only manuscript that that is found in is the one that the King James Bible comes from. Uh Uh-huh. You're right, it is. Congratulations. You're not as dumb as you look. Hey, in the New Testament, there's 12 doctrines of salvation laid out clearly. 12 doctrines of salvation. Do you know what they are? What do you, what's a guy doing standing in the pulpit on a Sunday morning telling people how to get saved when he doesn't even understand in the New Testament what the 12 doc, the doctrines of salvation are that is absolutely nails it down? I don't have a clue. No, I don't have a clue. There's no depth. They know about the mercy. They know about the longevity. Oh, they got the three point down of his of his of the of the dimensions of human uh, in the world we live in. But when it comes to the depth of God, uh uh-uh. uh When it comes to the seven pillars that this Bible is founded on, was the foundation for everything that God did. You can go down through those things and answer any one of those questions. You see, as you grow and you learn, you, you, you bring you along to that point. You don't dump that on somebody right out of the chute. And I just use that as an example of what the depth of the Bible. There's a lot more to it than what I just gave you. And, and when you do know those things, then you're careful with those things. 
you realize that you've got to bring people to a point to give them levels of truth. And that's why the Bible says that he keepeth it till afterwards. He doesn't always shoot everything that's on his mind. You know, there's never, it's never good to lay out all the truth you know unless you're in, in a special company, a special group that pretty much the lock about it. You know, most of you, I would put in that category, for Bible Institute and the people ministry. But you know it wasn't always that way. You had to come through discipleship too. You came through discipleship uh, uh, one, two, and came through things, Thursday night Bible study. I bring you along. There are things that you'll ask me on Thursday night that I'll give you part of the answer, but I won't give you the whole answer because you're not ready for it. And I got people out there on the YouTube that I'm going to be careful what I say. And there'll be some issues that I'll be very frankly, I'll sidestep. And I'll give you the practical ass thing, but I'm not going to take you into the depth of it. You know why? Because if we were on, now you know on, in people ministry and Bible Institute, we don't cut any slack. We go after everything and everybody. But you can't do that when you got visitors and you got people who maybe are not on that level. You've got to be smarter than the problem. Most of you have been given a great blessing by God, and you probably don't even see it. And that is that you're stupid. Now, don't take that in a bad way. I'm one of the stupidest people you're going to meet on this planet. Maybe a better word would be oblivious. You know, you've never been in an apostate church. You've never had to unlearn a lot of bad, stupid things. Jerry Boppin last Sunday talked about this church thinking outside the box, and, and then he made the reference that it would never fit in the box. And the reason why we think outside the box would never fit in the box because we fit real good in the book. And when you're in the book, you don't need the box. But that's where they're at. They get in that little box with a little mindset, with a little teachings, that they all dress the same way, they all talk the same way, they all believe the same thing. And if you put a Bible in front of them, they couldn't figure it out if their life depended on it. And you came here, majority of you came here just a good old lost sinner. Praise the Lord. You didn't have to unlearn anything except your sinful ways, and that was easy. All you ever got was a 100% Bible that is right the way it needs to be and, uh, and pure established truth. And you, you, you gravitated to it. You didn't have to undo all a lot of things that you, that you, you had to struggle through. I know some of you were former Jehovah Witnesses, and some of you were former Mormons and things like that, and you had to unlearn some things. I get that, but the bottom line is, you know what? You, you, you got there, and I've had guys and girls come in from other churches, you know, that they, 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 they had to be patient with them and give them some time. There's no hurry on it. You take your time. I've had people come into this church with an NIV. You know, in most Baptist churches, if you were met with an NIV, there'd be some some three-headed monster asks you to leave the church or get, get, don't bring that Bible in here because it's the devil's Bible. No, I believe it's the devil's Bible. But I'll tell you what, if that's where you're at, that's okay with me. And I've told him. I've had him come up to me and apologize. Well, you know, I heard what you said this morning. I feel bad. I got it. I said, don't feel bad. It's okay. If that's where you're at right now, then that's where you're at. Don't get rid of your NIV because I told you to. 
keep coming, keep growing, and I guarantee you, if you do what you need to do, God will tell you to dump it. And I got four or five at home that people have, have given me that said, I don't need this anymore. You were right. Here, give, I'm going to give it to you. I don't want it. You've got to bring people from where they're at. You can't judge them for where they're at. I mean, I'm saying some pretty harsh things here, but I'm, I'm, I'm picking on preachers today. I feel all the sympathy for a lot of preachers who don't know, but then you got the ones who are the scorners. Then verse 12 says, now here's the verse. If a ruler hearkeneth to lies, all her servants are wicked. Boy, that's a great principle today. That really is a good principle today. I'm telling you, if, if the leader sets the wrong example, the people are going to follow the wrong example. That was so true with Israel. When they had a good king, they were on top with God. When they had a bad king, they weren't. And you know what separated the good king from the bad king? The lies. The lies that the good kings wouldn't believe and the lies that the bad kings did believe. Hey, if the root is corrupt, then the whole tree is going to be corrupt. Romans 11, verse 16 through 18 tells you that if the, if the root is holy, then so is the branch. Plain and simple, if a pastor gets caught up in all the non-biblical junk he's taught and believes that can't be found anywhere in the Bible and falls apart the second you put a Bible to it, then he'll provide that same ungodly mess for every non-biblical Christian in his church and they'll follow the same mess that he's following. That's how it works. That's why the pulpit is an absolute... It, is, it has to be done correctly. It has to be exact. You can't get in the pulpit and teach something that you thoroughly don't understand yourself backwards, forwards, frontwards, upside down, and inside out. Because when you do, then you're just going to follow what everybody else has told you, whatever you went learned in school, whatever this person told you, whatever they thought. This sounded really good to you. It, it sounded workable. sounded plausible. It just wasn't very biblical. And in most cases, we've lost the truth so long ago that the great things of God are strange to us now. Strange to us now. I found that in dealing with pastors, and I've dealt with them all my life, that most pastors will have more allegiance to their school that they graduated from than they will to the Word of God that God gave them. And the reason for that is because in most cases, the school took the Word of God away from them. And that's where they're at. I've always followed one rule in the Bible. And I've never deviated. I mean, I'm, I've done many stupid things in my life, and I'm not standing up here <laughs> pretending that I'm, I'm better than anybody else or holy, or I've got my problems just like everybody else does. And, um, but I'll tell you one thing that I never, I never changed in my life. From day one, I always said to myself, I know what I believe. I know what the Bible teaches. But I don't have anything that I really want to believe other than truth. And my philosophy has always been if somebody sits down with me and shows me from the Bible where I'm wrong and the Bible's right, I'll dump it. Hey, if, if you can sit down and show me the tongues are for this day and age, I'll thank God I speak with more tongues than all of you. I want it. I don't care what it is. 
If somebody showed me that amillennialism and postmillennialism was the way to go from the Bible, I'd be in it. Somebody showed me that from the Bible that baptizing and sprinkling babies is the way to do it. We'd have a baby baptizing and sprinkling service next Sunday. I don't care what it is. I want the truth. That's all I want. I don't have any pet hobby horse. Well, I've got to believe that. No, only thing I want to believe is truth. But you're going to have to show me in the book. And I've been through that book a few times. I know where the truth is. And I'm telling you right now, these guys are more, have more allegiance to, to where they were taught or the denomination that they're in or the fellowship that they go with than they are the Bible itself. When I say I'm a Bible believer, you don't, I know, you hear it all the time, you don't understand, in my mind, the depth of that. I believe the Bible has the answer to everything. I don't think the Greek and the Hebrew will help you one bit. I think it's a waste of time. I, 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 don't, I don't believe that I don't go into Bible college will do one thing for you because God's program is a New Testament local church. You know why Bible colleges have come on the scene? Because churches have failed to do their job. That's why. I get it. And I'll tell you something else. <clears throat> if the book of Acts is our definitive book on the New Testament that defines everything for us, and it certainly does, Acts is the key book to unlock all of everything for the New Testament church. That's the way God designed it. It'll be Genesis in the Old Testament. Genesis in the Old Testament is the definitive book for everything in the Old Testament, and, Genesis, and Acts in the New Testament is the definitive book for everything in the New Testament. And if you don't know those two books backwards and forwards, inside out, and take them apart and bolt them back together like a Chinese kid can do blindfolded with an AK-47, you have no business being in the pulpit. Pardon that illustration there, but you got my point. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. This is question day. Genesis is the definitive book in the Old Testament. So you have Genesis, then you have four historical books. In the New Testament, Acts is the definitive book, but you have four historical books first, and then the book of Acts. It's reversed. Why is that? And if you don't know why that is, You ain't going to kid me for a minute. You know anything about the Bible. You may know some things about the Bible, but let's face it, you're playing with it. There's no depth to it. There's no depth to being able to see that. Why? Why? The book of Acts does everything for me. It's the key to unlock it. First of all, it shows me, it shows me established truth and it shows me established history. The book of Acts, first and foremost, is the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Secondly, it's a transition from the nation of Israel to the church. The book of Acts will show me there's, there's two lines of Bibles in the book of Acts. And you guys get out there, guys, in, in theological seminaries that will tell you this and tell you that. They're all lying to you. The definitive book says there's only two lines of Bibles. One of them God's and one of them the devil's. It's just that simple. Uh, in, the, in the book of Acts, you're going to find that there's three, three key cities mentioned. The book of Acts is built around those three key cities, and so is your Bible. 
And from that, you find that there's only three, manu- three families of manuscripts down through the history that makes manuscript evidence real simple. Now, when you go to Bible college, you're getting a theological talk with some doctor or some post-hole digger, Ph.D., he's going to tell you, well, there's many, many, many families and all these things. He does that to make it as confusing for you as he can so he can stay over you. Stay with the Bible. The book of Acts clearly teaches that there's three family of manuscripts, not four, not five, not two, not one, three. End of story. In the book of Acts, you're going to find the model church. Every theological seminary on this planet, every Baptist Bible college, every Baptist teaches you that the model church is in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. You're out of your mind. You couldn't divide out the book of Acts if your life depended on it. The model church is found in 1 Corinthians chapter, or, uh, Acts chapter 11 and 12 and in Acts chapter or 20. The first complete picture of how you got saved is found in the book of Acts. Oh, this is a good one. Yes, it's a place where God... I'll get that for you. Oh, you're welcome. You can't have your cap rolling around the church because if you spill it on the floor, you know, you get churched. <laughs> I'm just to be a friend of man. I'm telling you. I mean, you know, the book of Acts does everything. I mean, it shows you the first, where the, God just kind of takes the TV cameras and pans down into that little story there in Acts chapter 8. Shows you every aspect of, of salvation for the New Testament church. I mean, you got... People being saved in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3, and 3,000 souls were added to the church. Wow! That ain't this church. Of course, you knew that. Guy said one time, well, that's where the church, and I took him down there and I said, and they followed the apostles' doctrine. Where's the apostles' doctrine? Took him back to Matthew 10. He had a heart attack. Died on the spot. (laughs) Luckily, there was a charismatic there. Brought him back to life. Speaking of charismatics, here we go. In the book of Acts, tongues is defined for you. You don't have to go any fast book of Acts to know what tongues really are and to expose the heresy and the goofiness of being a charismatic. And I'll just throw this in to you. I never met a charismatic like I never met a hyper-dispensationalist, like I never met a, a Calvinist who ever knew anything about the Bible. The first missionaries are found in the book of Acts. The first evangelists are defined in the book of Acts. The first pastors are defined in the book of Acts. book of Acts does it all for you. And yes, you might have guessed it by now. first Bible college is found in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 19. And it's teaching against the Word of God. Take it. Don't take it. I don't care. Now, our verse tells us that if a, the, the, the ruler hearkeneth the lies, all his servants are wicked. And when a pastor or any leader gets corrupted in the Bible from non-biblical teaching and picking up all this junk that has nothing to do with the Bible, his people will follow right behind him because immaturity always produces immaturity. Depth will always produce depth. And that's why it's so important to be exact with your Bible. It's always important that you better know everything inside and out before you get up there and take charge and start to take people's lives and their destiny at the judgment seat of Christ in your hands.
Verse 13. The poor and the deceitful man meet together, and the Lord lighteth both their eyes. Wow, what a great principle this is. Now, the verse is basically saying that if you get caught up in bad doctrine or some heresy that you're teaching or some goofy thing that your denomination or whatever puts out, at some point you had to reject the real truth that God wanted you to have. John chapter 1 verse 9 says that he's the true light and the light of every man that cometh into the world. Every man and every woman on this planet at some point gets lighted with the truth. Everybody. For you to move past that and to worship the sun, to worship this or become a Catholic or a Mormon or to do this or become a, a goofed up Baptist or a charismatic, somebody had to show you the truth and you walked away from it. Every man and every woman ever bored. At some point in their life, God gave them the truth and they either accepted it or they rejected it. You see, God has an obligation to get every man the light at some point. And I can hear it now. Well, what about the heathen of Africa? Well, what about the heathen of Kansas City? You think there's a difference? Neither one of them wear clothes anymore. They all dance around campfires at night. They all follow a witch doctor. You know, in the Bible, and this is really a deep thing here, there's four things that declare the glory of God. Maybe you never thought about it. And of course, we know the glory of God is Jesus Christ. So God has created or put together four things that will, that will declare that glory, and God will use all of these, one of these, two of these, whatever he wants to do to his own pleasure to get light to somebody. Obviously, for you and for me, the first one is the Word of God. The second will be the Son of God, and connected with that would be the Holy Spirit of God. He, that's what they uses, but I'm listing that, these two separately. The third thing is the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalms 19 and Psalm 33, 6. So he uses the heavens. And, of course, the fourth thing to declare God's glory is you and me. Now, the Word of God never fails, the Son of God never failed, and the heavens never fail. You know one of the four will fail? You and me. And God will use, as I said, all of these, some of these, multiple of these, to do whatever He wants to do. In some cases, God will use the heavens to deal with man, um, you know, and the Bible already tells us in Romans 2.15 that the law of God is written on His hearts. So God takes him out there and shows him the heavens and shows him that magnitude. I don't ever think anybody that ever went out and, and looked up into the heavens that was just a common, ordinary man ever thought that Darwin did that. The awe and the spaces of the universe. You know, there's three things that man is transfixed on. Did you ever notice that? That he can just stare at them for hours. The first one is the ocean. He can sit in that beach and just watch that ocean for hours. The second one is mountains. He can just stare at that majestic mountain for hours. And the third one is fire. He can sit by that campfire and look down at that fire, feel that heat, watch those embers cracking and burning and falling off that log. When God took Abraham out there in Genesis chapter 15, Bible says whatever he told him, whatever he showed him, 
Bible says that Abraham believed God it was counted to him for righteousness. That's the exact spot that God found God's, that Abraham found God's righteousness. He took him out and showed him the stars. You know what he said to him? He said, someday your seed is going to be like the stars of heaven. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God. He didn't believe God about the coming death of Jesus Christ. He believed God what he said about the stars. From that point on, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10 says, Abraham looked for a city and a builder whose maker was God. Somebody said, here it comes. Somebody said, well, you know, uh, he told him about the death, burial, and resurrection in the stars. Really? Galatians chapter 3, 8 says that he preached the gospel to Abraham, or he preached to Abraham before the gospel. He's talking about something about them stars and what God was going to do with Abraham and his seed that was going to fill the heavens. <laughs> Look out now. Look out. Getting, ooh, what new doctrine is this? It's not a new doctrine. You're just an idiot. Hey, I've seen it at work in this church in my ministry all my life. God will bring somebody here that is messed up in the world, messed up in some doctrine, whatever, you know, some religion, some cult, some charismatic, you bring them in from time to time. And, and I believe with all my heart that God will bring people here, as he will in any Bible-believing church, to give you a chance to find the truth. Because you can't find it here, it's unfindable. The reason why you don't find it is because you don't want it. But you get it, you're faced with it. It only takes one word, one time, one sermon, boy, you're nailed. You walk out that door and say, oh, I'm not coming back to that. I can't believe any of that. Okay, good. That's all God has to give you. Light rejected, my friend, becomes lightning. Two kinds of fools. The poor, spiritually poor, but want to learn. The deceitful, who can't teach them anything. And the Bible says that God meets them both alike and gives them the light. And they're faced with the light of God's Word over the bad teachings or the world uh, or whatever they've been in their life, and now they're at a crossroads. They have to decide because of the light has exposed it. And deep down in their heart, God says, you know this is true. You know what He said nailed you. You know you can't prove what you believe. You know the world is wrong. Some will find the truth and embrace it. Others will hold on to the stupid ways and even though they can't defend it. The Bible will always separate the poor from the deceitful. Two types of fools last week we talked about, and, uh, you know, one's teachable and the other one's not teachable. I've seen pastors over my ministry get hit right between the eyes with the Bible and just walk away from it because uh, they were taught differently or because they had some status in the fellowship or because they had friends that didn't believe the way they believed. Hey, hey let me tell you something. Let God be true and every man a liar. You know, when I was growing up in the ministry, just a young guy, I was a, I was a thorn in a lot of people's sides. I still am, but I mean, I, it, at that point, in a different way. Um, I always was asking why. I, I always was asking why. I'd, I'd say, okay, okay, I'm not saying I don't believe you. I just want to know how it works. I, I'm not saying it's not true, but I need to know that I need to know the dynamics of this. How does it work? Show me. Walk me through it. Just give it to me. I won't bug you anymore. Just give it to me one time. I just, I'll get it. I need to see it. Yeah, I only wanted the truth, no matter what it was. When I came to Kansas City years ago, 1976, 
I left Canton Baptist Temple. There, you know, we talk about Mel Sabaka, my father in the Lord, and Jim's father in the Lord, and Jerry Bach. He had so many guys that he took care of and brought along. But there was another guy there that was the music director. His name was Bob Johnson. And it was basically light versus darkness. Mel believed the Bible, took a stood on the Bible, was trying to train guys. Bob Jones didn't believe, or Bob Johnson didn't believe anything about the Bible. Wanted to send all of his kids, all the kids, to Bob Jones University because they gave him a doctorate degree, free. Took it back later, but took it for a while he had it. And so it was a big fight always going on. And I had I had talked to Truman Dollar on the phone, and they were flying me out, and they were going to hire me uh, here to be the youth pastor. This is back in 1976. And I was getting ready to come to Kansas City, and Bob Johnson called me in his office. I'll never forget this. And he says, Bob, he says, uh, you know you're going out to work with Truman Dollar. And I said, yeah, I know. He says, and he's a big-time guy, which he was, big church. I said, I get it. And I said, I found very, very privileged. And he says, well, I want to give you some advice. And I said, well, good, Bob. I said, I need all the advice I can get. I said, that's fine. He says, well, let me just talk to you a minute. He said, let me tell you something. He says, you're going to go out there in a big church you're getting into the big leagues now. And I'm just telling you, you can't preach the way you preach. It won't be accepted. You can't say the things that you say. He says, those churches are all geared on, on results. And he says, Bobby says, you're just not going to get results preaching the way you preach. And I said, well, Bob, I said, I really appreciate that. I really do. And I said, I'll take that under advisement. But you need to know. I'm not interested in results. I'm interested in truth. I don't care a flip about results because I believe that if you preach the truth, God will bring the results. And boy, has that been true the last 50 years of my life because it's the truth that sets you free. It isn't the program or what you have or your results or whatever you do. And I would say to these guys, Can you, will you lay that out for me? I went to a Bible study on Thursday night that Mel had just like what you have here we have here. I don't think I asked a question in five years. You know why? Because every time I went there, everybody else asked a question. I wrote it down, got everything, and my goal was by the next Thursday night, I had worked that through my Bible completely, had everything laid out that if somebody would ask that question again, I could have answered it because I wanted the truth. That's all I wanted. You see, I was smart enough or dumb enough you know, that when I clearly saw it and was right on the money and accepted it, I, I never bought what anybody told me. I never did. You know, many people, uh, many, uh, many uh, uh, Bible-believing churches, they're called a cult today. And that's because goofy people just don't get it. The same stuff that we believe today that is supposed to be heresy was standard teaching in 1900. But you know how it goes. Too many marijuana cigarettes and too much booze. I get it. They don't even know the difference. You know, a cult will always try to control you and tell you what to think. A Bible-believing church will let the Holy Spirit of God control you and just try to get you to think. That's the difference. Go to the book. Let God be true and every man a liar. When it comes to the Bible, God has a specific process. And it wasn't designed by the Baptist or the Baptist Bible Fellowship or Tennessee Temple or, or Maranatha or, you know, Bob Jones. No one. The book will define every doctrine in it and there will be a definitive verse and a, def and, and a, a definitive chapter uh, to, to lay it out. There will be a chain of evidence that clearly defines your position. 
that will establish the context. And the context, you hear me all the time, it's vital. Every book in that Bible has a context. Every chapter has a context. Every verse has a context. Every word has a context. Now, you don't have a good handle on those things. Hey, stay out of the ministry, kid, please. Just stay. There, are, there are too many guys in the ministry today who have no real understanding of the Bible, and yet they've been saved, what, 10, 15, 20 years, and they're never going to get there because they're stuck. Now, you've got to ask yourself why that is. Why can a guy be in the ministry 20, 30, 40, 50 years and, 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 never, and, and, and never figure it out? I mean, they believe all kinds of stuff because they all bought into a system. I'm just telling you. I've been in it, man. I know. I watched it. You ain't talking to somebody didn't ride that horse down the road. I saw it for 50 years almost. I saw it. I watched it. And today, we suffer the same fate as the nation of Israel did. We're in captivity. Again, one last lesson from history today. You know, the Bible in the Old Testament was given to God's people. But the custodianship of the Word of God was the scribes, the priest class. They're the only ones who could touch, handle, copy, do anything with the Word of God, and they gave it from them to the people. That was God's design. They had 100% complete control uh, of the Bible in the Old Testament. Now, we know by the time that Jesus shows up, all that had changed. Something happened in those 400 years when Israel goes into apostasy and the priest class, the scribes, corrupt themselves because they're totally corrupt when Jesus shows up. Not only that, now you have coming along about 160, 165 A.D., two non-biblical groups that God never intended to have anything to do with the nation of Israel. One of them was the Sadducees. The other one was the Pharisees. Now, when Jesus shows up at the first coming of Christ, the structure of the nation of Israel has been shattered. The priest class is now corrupt. The scribes are against Jesus. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees have taken over the leadership of the Word of God in the nation of Israel. They now have complete control. Now, you don't want to miss this. They came into power of God's Word and God's people through a non-biblical system that God never authorized. Nowhere in that Bible is a Sadducee or a Pharisee ever authorized by God to do anything. They come in in a time of that 400 silent years when the canon is closed in the Old Testament. God is giving no revelation till the first coming of Christ. And this is where Israel was, that the scribes and the Pharisees, and the scribes, they, they corrupted themselves. The Pharisees come in, the Sadducees come in, and now they take over God's people and they are a completely non-biblical structure that God never intended to run His people and they destroyed it. And they turned the people against the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the people embraced him at the first coming, some of them, but he never recepted that. You know why? Because it had to be the religious leaders that bowed their knee, and they were against him in every way, shape, or form, and they destroyed Israel. Now, here it comes. Today in the New Testament church, you and me, if you're saved this morning, we are the New Testament priests. 
we are of the priesthood of Melchizedek. We're of the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ. And God's structure for that priesthood is the New Testament local church. And it was the New Testament local church that is God's structure that you and I are to be the custodians of the Word of God. Nobody else. It's ours. It's the church's. That it's given to his body. It's given to his people. It's given to the priest class within the structure of the church under the authority of a New Testament local church. And without a doubt, the New Testament local church is the only authority structure for New Testament Christianity, said and done. Everything else, no matter what it is, how good it looks or what good it does, is not God's program. I didn't say I didn't say it, it couldn't do some good things. Listen to me. I'm telling you, it has to be under the structure of a New Testament local church. And today, the priest class of the New Testament Christianity, just like the priest class in the Old Testament, where they turned it over to the scribes and the Pharisees, we've turned it over to the Bible colleges and the Bible scholars. And we have lost. When neo-evangelicalism came in around 1900 and the neo-orthodoxy comes in around the same time period, you know what their goal is? To take the Bible out of the hands of the common man and put it back in scholarship. And that's exactly what it is. Because the devil knew the most powerful thing on this planet, the most powerful thing on this planet is a common man with a common Bible. And where the nation of Israel lost everything they had and could not see the first coming of Christ because the priest class corrupted themselves first and then allowed two non-biblical groups to take the Word of God from them. The body of Christ is going to miss the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church is going to catch them. Why? There's churches now that don't even believe there's a rapture anymore. They don't even believe in the judgment seat of Christ. They don't even think about the judgment seat of Christ and it's going to catch them just like the first coming did. You know why? Because the body of Christ has corrupted themselves, the priest class, and turned it all over, turned it all over to a non-biblical scribes and the Pharisees system that has destroyed Christianity by taking, in both cases, the very Word of God from you. And now we have Christians, pastors, being turned out by the thousands every year. Know nothing about the Bible. No depth to them. They couldn't figure out the seven pillars if they were sitting on them. Not a thing they get out of the Bible. It's all little cassettes by little preacherettes. It's nothing about the little sermonettes that they give out. It has nothing to do with truth. It has nothing to do. It's about the love of God, but there's no depth to it. It's not, it's the depth that it anchors your soul and builds you to love God more than you ever could in your life because you see and understand the majesty of God. Three great verses. They put it in perspective for us in a very, very, very clear way. And, uh, you know, this is why that no matter what, <clears throat> this church will always stand on the truth. It will always preach the truth. We'll bring you along. We'll help you get there. My goal is for you to get there. But I'll tell you right now, you'll, you'll never do it outside the book that God gave us. Well, we'll hold up there.